Our scripture lesson comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. We're, consider, we're continuing our series through these two books. First and Second Samuel actually was one book in the original and when it was written. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one. They're in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids. You can grab a Bible in the back by the sound booth. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. Uh, we, we study out of the English Standard Version, ESV, uh, is what we're going through, uh, is what we use as a church. So, um, I'll put most of the, some of the verses up, um, but not all of them. We're going to be two chapters. Usually we do a little bit less uh, scripture, but today we're going to go through uh, this narrative this, uh, of chapter 4 and chapter 5. So with that said, kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. And we are in First, first Samuel chapter 4 and 5. But let, let me just, as, as a way of introduction, uh, let me tell you that Samuel, if you know, is written in a strategic time uh, in the history of Israel in a a particular time within the redemptive history of God. Uh, It is a time of transition from a theocracy where God governed his people through the word of his prophets and the ministerial work of the priest to the time of the kings, a time of a monarchy. God now will raise up kings. It was not that God would automatically or, or raise up a king and say, okay, I'm done with you people. You got your king. Leave me out of it. Uh, the idea was that God would raise up a king and, and that king was supposed to humble himself under God's mighty hand and serve him exclusively and lead the people under him to, the, you know, into the, the land in which they live and to worship And even we know the beloved King David failed miserably. No king has ever lived who was completely humble and followed the will and the will, will and the ways of God perfectly until the King of Kings came. And that's what really Samuel and all the Bible is about. The King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he alone humbled himself in complete and perfect submission to the Father's will and then was crushed for our sins. In the book of Samuel, the story of Samuel, the prophet, the priest, and the judge, and even the two kings that are mentioned in this book, Samuel, uh, excuse me, Saul and David, are part of God's greater story. God's greater story of redemption, his redeeming work through the person and work of the true and better king, and his name is Jesus. If you remember, the book opens up, Samuel opens up at a dark place in Israel's history. It was the conclusion of the era of the judges where there was no earthly king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how Judges ends. But yet God, we have seen in the first few chapters, God was working. And that's true for us today. Before we even move into this text, I want to, I want to point out that when, when times are dark, when things are hard, God is working. Some of you need to hear that this morning. He is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He is always working for his glory and for the good of his people. And the story of Samuel opens up with this glimmer of hope with a young barren woman named Hannah. Hannah was a woman of faith and integrity. Hannah makes a vow to God that if, that if he, God, would show his grace and kindness toward her by giving her a son, she would then give the son back to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Lord opens her womb and he gives her a son. She names him Samuel. And after maybe three or four years, after the boy is weaned, her and her husband, Elkanah, Elkanah keep their vow. And they bring this young boy, again, maybe four or five years old, to the tabernacle that was erected in Shiloh. We learn also at Shiloh, there was a man named Eli. He was the high priest. And he had sons. And the scripture declares their sons to be worthless sons. I didn't say that. That's what the scripture says. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. Hannah and her husband Elkanah, Elkanah, honored the Lord by keeping their vow, while Eli honored their sons, chapter 2, verse 29, above the Lord. He honored their sons above the Lord by fattening themselves on the choicest parts of every offering of the people in Israel. You see, Eli's sons, Ophni and Phinehas, were abusing their priestly roles in the church, in the tabernacle. They were abusing their, their roles. They were not performing the sacrifice the way which God had told them to do it. It got so bad, they were taking meat by force, if, uh, if the, uh, the one that would bring in the offering wasn't going to give them what they wanted, it was, they were taking it by force. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were despicably having sex with the women serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. A wicked practice that was fo- probably uh, uh, followed over from their pagan neighbors. 
And God had enough. We saw that in chapter 2. God had enough, and he judged Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Chapter 2, an unnamed prophet told Eli that his priestly line was going to end, and that his sons, both of them, Hophni and Phinehas, shall die on the same day. That was in chapter 2. And all throughout chapter 2, we saw two weeks ago how Elkanah and Hannah were serving the Lord, were worshiping the Lord, were honoring the Lord, and yet Eli was dishonoring the Lord. And Eli's sons were doing despicable and disgraceful things in the temple. There was a, quite a contrast going on. And in the midst of this contrast, we opened up in chapter 3, verse 1 from last week, and it says this. It's, it's the call of Samuel. It says, now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And Pastor Ricky did a great job last week interpreting and bringing application to that calling of Samuel. When God came to Samuel and said, Samuel, Samuel. And, and, and when God called Samuel, what, what was his first prophetic proclamation what was it that God asked Samuel to do first your first mission as a prophet go tell your boss go tell your high priest the high priest go tell your mentor that God was fulfilling his word and that your sons are going to die chapter 3 verse 11 then the Lord said to Samuel is your first mission buddy behold I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle on that day I will fulfill against Eli that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to the end. I will declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Hmm. It's a reminder to parents when we love our children, we need to love them, love them, unconditional love, but we need to discipline them as well. After Samuel hears the word of the Lord, he goes and tells Eli. <laughs> you know, I can only imagine, right? It's the first, the first thing he's asked to do, and he's got to go, and he does it. And then chapter 3 ends, if you turn with me there to chapter 3, verse 9, it ends this way. We have the call of Samuel. Samuel hears from the Lord. Samuel hears his calling, fulfills his role as a prophet. God, he goes to Eli, tells him the news, not so good news. And then the end of chapter 3, it says this, verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, verse 20 of chapter 3, all of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everyone in all the region knew that Samuel was now the prophet of the Lord. Verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for, this is very important, underline this in your Bible if, if you write in it, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, how? By the word of the Lord. That's the way God reveals himself. By the word of the Lord. Ephesians says, through the apostles and the prophets, we receive the foundation, the scripture. We have the word of the Lord. And God reveals himself through the word of the Lord. It's important. Verse, chapter four, verse one. As everyone knew, everyone knew the word of the Lord came. Everyone knew that Samuel's the prophet. Everyone understood that his role and God had called him. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You see that? Chapter four, verse 1a. That's the backdrop of now chapter four, five, six, and seven. And the narrator wants us to see clearly that the word of the Lord, which was rare in those days, had returned to God's people, right? It returned to Shiloh through the prophet Samuel. God had spoken in the midst of this brokenness and darkness, in this corruption in the tabernacle. God showed up. And God's word has been restored. That's what makes what's next so unbelievable. Because it didn't really matter to Israel. In fact, this next few chapters, chapters 4 through 7, is what is known as the ark narrative. And Samuel is not heard of in chapter 4, 
5, 6, until chapter 7, there's no mention of Samuel. There's no mention of the prophet. There's no mention of the word of the Lord. So on the one hand, the word of the Lord had returned. The, the, Lord, the word of the Lord has re, been renewed to the, by the prophet. And everyone recognized he's a prophet of God. God is speaking to us through his word, through this prophet. Yet on the other hand, God's people turned away. And we'll see that God's people were chasing after idols, after their superstitious rabbit foot, as we'll see in a moment. The only thing that's really troubling is the rabbit foot was something that God had given them and they turned it into a superstitious idol. And let me say right up front as we get into the text, God's word will come back and do and accomplish what it has been sent out to do. Whether you receive it or not, whether whether you believe it or not, God's word, whether you neglect it or not, God has spoken First to that unnamed prophet, and now he's speaking through Samuel to Eli and his family, and his word will accomplish all that he, the Lord, has said he will do. And if you're submitted to the word of God, that's joy. But if you are fighting against the word of God, that's trouble. Simple outline. Not the greatest outline I've ever done, but I've been sick all week. Sorry. Actually, it makes sense a little bit. Whoop, go back one. Can we go back one? Just show the outline, please. Relationship or relic. We're going to see that the Israelites were counting on their rabbit's foot and had walked away from a relationship through the word of God. Defeat and death. We'll see Israel... Defeated in a battle, and we'll see the death of Eli and his sons, just as the Lord said. And then sovereignty over superstitions. We'll get to chapter 5. We're going to hit it quickly, but it's a funny chapter. You should go home and read it. I think it's meant to actually put a smile on our face, personally. Anyway, so that's where we're going. So, number one, relationship or relic. Look at verse 1 again of me, with me in chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel, <laughs> contrast, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines, verse 2, drew up a line against Israel. I think they were the aggressors. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistine. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they're defeated on the battlefield. There's going to be another defeat on the battlefield in verse 10 where there was a very great slaughter and 30,000 foot soldiers fell. And, And it's striking that the elders first asked a real good question. Rightly, they said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They're acknowledging the sovereignty of God, but, but there was no seeking God through the word of God. Samuel the prophet, Samuel the preacher, was not consulted at all throughout the whole thing we're going to see today. The will of God came through the word of God, but obviously the preaching of Samuel went on deaf ears. We don't know exactly what was said, but we know the word of the Lord came and there is no absolutely acknowledgement of Samuel at all. Israel was right. Israel was right in supposing that the Lord was responsible for their defeat, but wrong in thinking that they could parade the Ark of the Covenant and that would somehow compensate for their neglecting of God's word. Make sense? Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Some of you know what that is. Some of you may not. This is a picture of it. It's not really the Ark of the Covenant, but that's the description of it, okay? The Ark of the Covenant, if if you know anything about the Old Testament, was given to, commissioned by God to Moses at Mount Sinai that he would make certain furnishings for the temple, uh, for the tabernacle, actually. The temple wasn't built yet. And some of the furnishing was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box, 
about four feet by two feet, a little over two feet, uh, wrapped in gold. It had rings on it just like that, that the wood would go through it so it could be carried around by the priest. On top of it, just as the picture, there was two winged creatures, the cherubims, facing each other with outstretched wings, touching the tips across the top of the box. The ark actually served a, a practical function. It collected inside the box, there was the, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, a copy of the Ten Commandments. There was um, Aaron's staff. There was some manna inside the box. And the box wasn't really, this, this Ark of the Covenant wasn't seen by a lot of people. There, I'm sure there were you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews who never saw this before because this Ark of the Covenant would stay inside the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would go in and see. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that's where the box stayed. And on top of the box was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover, right on top of that. And that's where the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of a, of a spotless, blameless lamb or, or, or animal sacrifice. And the blood would be sprinkled for the atonement for sin. And that's where the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God was seen on the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 4, it's given its full name. It says, look what it says. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, catch that, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Family, that's, that's Hannah theology, if you've been tracking with us from Hannah, chapters 1 and 2. She introduced the language earlier about God of Host, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord who, who is uh, uh, triumphant. He, he does great things. He, he has military might. He is um, uh, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's enthroned, it says, in the, uh, on the cherium, above the cherium. He's not in the box. He's not in the box. He's above that. He, he's the invisible God who resides in glory. The box is his footstool, it says in Scripture. When he comes and he descends on top as a footstool he has chosen to reveal himself in the Shekinah glory and the leaders were who I'm sure Eli was part of them says you know what let's go let's we just got beat up let's go to Shiloh let's talk to Eli's sons and and let's get the Ark of the Covenant bring it out of the Holy of Holies and, and bring it there that it may save us the box will save us from the power of our enemies like a rabbit's foot let's get the rabbit's foot we need we need luck But how many times have you and I faced hard times, trials in our lives that we just want out? And then we start looking in all the wrong places. We look for God's power in all the wrong places. We see God's intervention in all the wrong places. When we're cornered and we feel trapped and we have nowhere else to go for help. We'll do anything. I've been in that place. And I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, when those times happen, wait on the Lord. Lean upon the Lord. Trust His Word. Don't turn to created things that have no lasting power. You will know if you are trusting God, if, if you pray for the power of God to come, not simply to restore your health or to uh, give your business a, a, a boost or to restore your broken marriage, but in the midst of your hardships and trials and difficulties, you are not willing to do anything that is not according to God's word. I am not going outside of the word of God. Not anything that would obstruct God getting glory in it that others will see even in the midst of my trials that God is enough. Then you know that you're waiting on the Lord. The Israelites were threatened, but they did not consult the word of the Lord through Samuel. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord. How does that go? You know it. With acknowledging all your ways. Go ahead, say it. Not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Right? He will guide your paths. They, but they were like, no, I, I, I wanna, I'd rather manipulate God. I'd rather bring out my little rabbit's foot. Right? I'm going to try to manip- get, manipulate him and, and harness God's power the way I see fit. That's paganism. 
Paganism tries to harness God, control God, manipulate God. It reminds me of the heretical teaching of the word faith theology of Hagen and, and, and Copeland. They insist there's this, there's this law working in the universe, this force of faith, and even God is subject to the force of, force of faith. Words can be manipulated, and therefore God's sovereignty can be thwarted, and God himself is subject. You just got to say it the right way and do it the right way, and God is somehow bound to what you think God wants you to have, and that's all health and wealth. That's idolatry. That's paganism. Turning our faith and, by extension, ourselves into these little gods who can control almighty God. They're doing the same thing here. A system where God can be coerced, manipulated, controlled, and exploited for their own ends. And any time you and I focus on a religious ritual, a religious relic, using certain words that we somehow can bind God, rather than resting in a relationship with God through the word of God, we are substituting ritual for relationship. Whether it's a cross on our neck, Prayer beads, pictures of Jesus from the, from the culture I came up, grew up in saints, saints, statues of saints. Stick them in the ground upside down. Your house will sell. I've been down that whole road. <laughs> Rather than just simply trusting the Lord through his word. So they go and get this ark like a rabbit's foot. And, and look who's leading the charge. Verse 4. The two sons... Corrupted, wicked, verse chapter 2, verse 12 says, they don't even know the Lord. And who comes walking with the Ark of the Covenant? Hophni and Phinehas. Abusing people in the temple, sleeping around, and they're carrying the Ark. Sounds like things are going to go really well. The visual presence of God, and there they are. And what does Israel do at verse 5 when they show up? As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp... All Israel broke down and cried and repented of their sins. No, it doesn't say that. That's what they should have done. They gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So just because we're shouting, singing out loud and praising the Lord does not necessarily mean that God is in it. Israel expected God's blessing without repentance. And any time we hold on to the forms of religion without true repentance, we are substituting ritual for relationship. Whether you're involved in a high church, when I say high church, liturgical, robe-wearing, everything is done particularly in a certain way. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not wearing a robe, but it's okay. Or the, not low, the low church where things aren't uh, always very liturgical, they're not very formal, either way, Both have extremes, and both of them can get our eyes off of a personal relationship with God into turning that into some sort of ritual in the way you do things. And I got to tell you, and I didn't say this at the first service, but I'll say it now. Our church is more of an informal, but that could become an idol too. Oh, you're that church, you know, this is what you guys wear, you know. You know, sometimes I just want to wear a three-piece suit just to throw people off. Because it's not really about formal informal. It's about a relationship with God through the Word of God. That's most important, okay? That's just a side note. That's free. You're welcome. Okay. <clears throat> Number two, death and defeat. Now, what happens is the Philistines hear the no- heard the noise of the shouting, and they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learn that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. Notice what just happened. Israel treated God like their genie, rabbit foot. And what did the people around Israel see about Yahweh? Falsely, but they saw a rabbit's foot. We've got to be careful how we portray God to others. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, verse 8. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Plural, gods, they got it wrong. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. You see, the ark was supposed to be this visual symbol of God's presence among the Israelites, but it was never meant to substitute God himself. God told them in Deuteronomy how they ought to go to war. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you, not the ark. 
you, you went about it the wrong way. Uh, it is the Lord God who goes to fight with you for, against you and your enemies to give you victory. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. But the Israelites were trusting in the ark rather than God. And, and, I, and I have to say, let me just throw this in there. There, there is some degree of reasonability for this is, is, is a word I guess I can use. The Ark of the Covenant, when it was given to Moses and was built, was then used, God told them to, as they were leading, as they were walking through the wilderness in the desert, the Ark was their lead. In fact, Whenever they came against an enemy, Moses would say to them, with the ark as the lead, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, and may your foes flee before you. And then when Moses died and Joshua took over, and they were getting ready to go into the promised land, Joshua became the leader, and as they were getting ready to go in, he said to the priest this, take up the ark, take up the ark of the covenant, and pass on before the people. And not only that, but when they went into the promised land, if you read it in Joshua, when they went into the Jordan River, and it says the river was high in that time of season, the ark went in with the priest and the water just, zip, and they crossed on dry land. That's pretty cool. And if that wasn't enough, when they're outside the walls of Jericho, and God tells them to go with the little peas that marked around the walls, some of you know what that means. Little piece, uh, we're marching. Okay, that's veggie tales. Anyway, they were to be led by the ark. And on the seventh time, on the seventh day, seven times around, shout, and the wall came down. Like, that's pretty cool. I mean, that, that, let's, let's get the ark. If we're, if we're losing, let's go get the box. It knocked down the walls of Jericho. It certainly could take down these Philistines. And this dramatic victory of their, in their minds, I'm sure, of this military triumph would have attached that, 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 that victory to the ark. So the elders are like, hey, let's, let's just go get the ark. We can recreate the circumstances by simply dragging the box wherever we go. Just take it with us. But the bottom line is, if you think about it, the bottom line is, if you bring the box into war... And you lose, whose fault is it? Seems like the box failed. The God, the God, the God loses honor. Certainly God's not going to be dishonored. Let's bring the box. He's got to, he's got to, to, to honor himself. He's not going to let us just fail and him look bad. Whose honor is at stake? He'll look weak and impotent. It's on him. He's the, he's, the, he's, the, he's the failed God. Sort of like when your kids come in the room. You ever been in this case? You got kids, and they're coming in with their friends. They just invited their friends to stay overnight for three days, go on vacation with you, and do everything. And they come, and they bring their friend with you. And in front of their friend, like, hey, they come. I told them they could stay for dinner and go to Florida and hang out for the next day. They're like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry they brought you in on this, but no, and don't do this with that. You go in the other room. You come to me alone, right? That's how it works. Anybody got kids know that happens, right? You're the bad guy. Put, put on a spot. D.R. Davis says this, when we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. And that is the real problem with paganism. That's the real problem, again, with faith, this word faith theology. If you don't get the car, you don't get the health, you don't get the prosperity, it has to be your fault because God is not weak and impotent, is he? So you either give up as a failure, I just don't have enough faith, or you draw a conclusion that Belief in God is a hoax because you did not get what you think God promised you. And therefore, he must be weak. He must be impotent. Christianity is not for me. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel. The Israelites learned that God cannot be controlled. Unfortunately, for 30,000 foot soldiers and two dead sons, they had to find out the hard way. Take courage. The Philistines are talking to their fellow Philistines. They see the box coming, the ark coming. Be, be men of courage, lest you become slaves. Don't want to be slaves to the Hebrews. As, they, as they've been to you, be men, fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Verse 11, and the ark of God was captured. 
and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. When God is more useful than beautiful, you're heading down a bad road. When God is more useful than beautiful, we're going down a bad path. Their sins were not only of the superstitious belief, but also the failure to remove these two leaders in the church, Hophni and Phinehas, who appeared to be leading the people. They did not even have enough sense, as they did in the days of Judges, to cry out to the Lord during their defeat. They went and got their rabbit's foot. And can you imagine, can you imagine that the Ark of the Covenant held that kind of power, that wherever the Ark went, the ones who owned and ruled the Ark would then rule the world. Can you imagine? I got a couple chuckles in the first service. It's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Unrivaled power. The Nazis got a hold of it. You got to see the movie, I'm sure. Right? Got to get that ark. Whoever gets that ark is going to rule the world. And then Dr. Marcus Brody summarized the threatening danger. And he says about this religious relic. And he says this, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And then at the end, you know, the ark is opened up and they blind themselves and they all melt like butter on a stage and lightning strikes through. I was going to show it, but I don't want to freak the kids out. It would have been kind of funny. But anyway, Israel's defeat makes it clear that God had given them up to their enemies in judgment. Israel lost this war with the Philistines because of the wickedness of Eli and his sons and their failure to turn to the word of the Lord. The absence of Samuel over the next three chapters in this narrative strikes a deafening silence. Though the Israelites expected God to be on their side, as they fought the Philistines, the Lord had his own agenda. Because it's just as Peter wrote in, in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins where? In the household of God. And that's exactly what was going on. Now, I don't care what the nightly news said. I don't care what the reporters reported. I don't care what station of fake news you watched. Both sides of the aisle, no matter what was said and what was done, what everybody thought, that God had somehow lost, that somehow God was dishonored. God was, in fact, protecting his honor and restoring it by fulfilling his word and passing judgment. I will tell you, God is more concerned about his honor than he cares about the box that the Philistines have captured. God no longer is going to be despised in Shiloh. And let me tell you something, removing those men, those false teachers, those false prophets, may seem harsh to some, but it was an act of grace to that community. And I say that with fear in my own soul, that God will raise up leaders and take leaders out. And sometimes God takes leaders out because God wants to do something, that leader's in his way, or that leader's living in sin, or that leader is doing something, and that leader will be removed. That includes me and everybody else. Verse 22, excuse me, 12 through 22, we hear about the death of Eli and his grandson. A man of Benjamin ran after the battle line and came to Shiloh. So somebody took off on the battle. And he, he, his clothes were torn, verse 12, dirt on his head, sign of grief and mourning. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. His heart was trembling for the ark. We'll see, his eyes are bad. But he's sitting there watching. When the man came into the city, he must have ran right past Eli. He tells the news to the city, and Eli hears the sound of the city crying out loud. He's like, what's going on in the city? And the man, I think, hurried back and came and told Eli, verse 15. Now, Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, verse 16, I am he who came from the battle. I fled from the battle. And he said, how did it go? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. The ark has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. 40 years. When did Eli fall over when he heard what news? The news of the defeat? The news of the, of the loss? The news of the sons? No. 
Eli fell over backwards when he heard that the ark of God, the very visible presence of God among the Israelites was taken. It was a simple confirmation, I think, to him and to all of Israel about the sad state they were in. And look at verse 19, what happens next. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, time of her death, she's, she's giving birth, she's dying, the woman attending her said, don't be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child, look at what it says, Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of the God of God has been captured. Ichabod, literally, no glory. The glory has departed. Glory in the Old Testament is synonymous for God himself, the presence of God. The glory of God is the presence of God. And she's now saying that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. God has departed from Shiloh. God has left the camp. God has left Israel. And when they decided to, to get their rabbit's foot out, the hands, well, the Ark was fallen into the hands of the Philistines. He is no longer present with God's people. Now, there's an Old Testament scholar by the name of H.L. Ellison. And this is what he said. And I want you to pay attention to what he said because I think he's right. Following the storyline. He said this, the glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark of God had been captured because the glory had already departed, end quote. Let me say it again. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark of God had been captured because the glory had already departed. And I think he's right. I think he's right. I think if you read in the Old Testament, you read about the glory of God, you read about the Shekinah glory coming down in the wilderness, you will read that when the cloud came down, people stayed put. When the cloud was lifted up and moved, people moved. They followed the presence of God. They didn't call upon God to follow them. And we get caught up in that, don't we? Do all these plans, and we got all these things. Who I'm going to marry? Where I'm going to move? And I, I talk to people all the time. I said, "Well, have 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 you talked to anybody? Have you consulted? Have you prayed? Have you? no? Like you can't ask God to bless everything you've already determined yourself to do. We're supposed to go to God and God's people and see what God would want us to do. The glory of God was to be followed in obedience, not the other way around." You don't move the ark wherever you please and expect God to obey. You see, their failure to follow the word of God in the worship of God, their failure to follow the word of God in the war that they encountered has caused God to remove, has caused God to remove his presence from them long before the ark was taken, I think. The capture of the ark only symbolizes what's already been going on. A temple and all that was going on for so long, the glory had gone. And now the ark is gone. Lastly, sovereignty over superstition. As we get into chapter 5, one commentator said that it's like being a fly on the wall. And that's true. Because we get to be uh, spectators. We get a seat watching what's going on with the ark as it, it is now brought into the Philistine camp. And one of the things we have to remember as we look at chapter 5, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, so don't worry about that. Uh, we must remember that the God who is the one and true God, Israel God, is not like the gods, the pantheist gods of that day where they were, they were kept in different reigns, uh, different uh, places. They were, they were gods that were uh, um, regional. Our God is the Lord of the earth. Acts chapter 17 Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the Lord ruler of the universe. God not only allowed the Philistines to come and capture the ark of the covenant and take it into their land, God allowed it and God used it not only to demonstrate his discipline over Israel, but his sovereignty over the nations 
including the Philistines. It looked like God's people lost. It looks like God lost to the enemies. And the enemies had won. But that is not the case because the sovereignty of God is not inhibited by circumstances or geography or some sort of competing power. And that's important because when we have setbacks in life, when, when we have difficulties in life, and we feel like, wow, we just took three giant steps backwards. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is not inhibited by, by competing power, circumstances, or geography. So let me just give you a quick gist of what's going on in chapter 5. You can read it when you get home to more detail. The Philistines capture the ark and they take it to a place called Ashdod. Ashdod was a place where their temple worship of the worship of Dagon. That's their, that's their number one God. There's multiple gods. There's the number one God. And since Dagon is the one that gave them the victory, so they think, against Israel, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they set it right alongside Dagon as a subservient servant to their God. That's where the Ark will go. But then on the next day, as they wake up in the morning and they want to just enjoy the splendor, uh, the plunder of their, of their conquest, they go into the temple to sacrifice and worship to Dagon. And what do they find? Verse 3, their Dagon is face down, face downward on the floor. Interesting phrase because face downward in the original language means uh, it's an expression of worship. It is, it is a posture of reverence and submission. Dagon was bowing down doing carpet time before the ark of the Lord. And verse 3 is funny if you think about it. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Right? Not only is he face down, but he needs help. Here, here, here God, we'll put you back up. Right? The one who's supposedly this mighty God in battles now help us on the floor and needs a couple of people to pick him up and put him back in his place. And it gets better. They're like, all right, let, let's, let's go and do our thing. We'll come back tomorrow. They come back the next day. And what do they find? They find Dagon back worshiping the Lord. And now his hands are cut off and his head's cut off. A typical sign in ancient uh, days of, of, of an execution. The Philistines conquering divine hero has been humbled and then executed. And he lay on the dirt, handless, useless, with just the body. And yet the Lord's hand, look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. The hand of Dagon has been cut off, but the hand of the Lord is heavy upon them. And the word tumor, interesting word, it could mean a couple of things, but there are a couple of Hebrew uh, uh, scholars who, who believe that that's the same word, and I don't mean to gross you out, and I'm sorry, I'm only going to say this once, hemorrhoid. Okay, I'm just saying that's what it says. In fact, the Latin Vulgate says this, he smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. Okay, we'll move on. So, like Humpty Dumpty, this guy is broken. There's nobody to put him back together again. So they're like, what are we going to do? They pick him up. They take him from Ashdod to Gath, about 12 miles away. And then the same thing happens at Gath. So like, yo, we don't want this, we don't want this ark here either. Let's, let's go to Akron, about five miles north of that. And when Akron hears about it, verse 10 and 11, they're like, that thing is coming here. We don't want the ark. Like, we got to get rid of this ark, man. We, everybody's getting these tumors and these, these boils and this going on. We don't want the ark here. They all get together, verse 10 of chapter 5. The ark is not coming here. Verse 11, God's hand was heavy on them. They too were getting tumors. Some were actually dying. God comes in in judgment and displays his sovereignty and his power and all without Israel's help. Notice that. Davis writes this again. This was no tame God the Philistine had conquered. The ark had fallen into their hands, but they had now fallen into Yahweh's hands. End quote. The book of Hebrews says it's a dreadful thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will not take the back seat, a back seat to silly superstition and delusions like one with a religious, the one with the religious relic wins. God's ark was captured and brought into enemy territory. And it was there that God worked his sovereignty. Going from city to city. Declaring his power. God had triumphed over his enemies. And finally they acknowledged. Look to some degree. They acknowledged God's superiority. Look at the close. The very last verse 12. 
it says this. Do I have 12 up there? No, one more. Verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went to heaven. Okay? The men who did not die, and their cry went up to heaven. It sort of sounds like, it sort of sounds like the, the same thing the Israelites, when they were in bondage, and they cried out to heaven, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord rescued them. And here, the Philistines are crying out to heaven. I don't think they even know what they're doing, but they're crying out. And let this be a lesson Let this be a lesson with this whole superstition, this whole idolatry, this whole idea that we can harness the power of God. Listen, Calvin said it right, book one of chapter two. Man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. If we think we're smarter today because we don't have a Dagon in our closet, and we don't have things carved out of wood, that, that we, things that happen in Dagod's temple no longer happens in the age of communication and, and sophistication. Let me tell you, there's an internal battle that all of us face. And the question that all of us have to answer is, who will we worship? Who will we serve? Who will we trust? What word will we count on? Where will we go to hear the voice of God? The idols of men and women's heart are set in opposition to the one true God. And here's the problem. Here's the problem all of us face, that our sin has separated us from God's presence, causing us to seek glory, to seek in other things what we can only have in God. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have separated you between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the bad news. The glory of God has departed Shiloh. The glory in the presence of God has departed mankind. Hundreds of years later after this incident, hundreds of years after disobedience, after disobedience, after disobedience, trying to worship the Lord and worship idols, God's patient wore off with God's people, and this time God's people was sent into exile. <coughs> <clears throat> it was Ezekiel in a vision who sees the temple in Jerusalem, the glory of God on wheels departing out of Jerusalem toward, over, the, over the land toward Babylon. And the glory would never return to Israel ever again until the word becomes flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the only way to defeat these gods, these idols of yours, is to see their uselessness, their worthlessness, and turn from loving and serving them to turn to the one and true God who is of infinite value, incalculable worth, full of glory. Well, how? Remember the mercy seat? It was a place where God descended as Shekinah glory came down on the mercy seat as the blood of the sacrificial animal was sprinkled over the atonement cover. Under the mercy seat was the law that they had violated. When the priest laid the blood across the mercy seat, the atonement cover, he was covering the broken laws and blood interposed between a righteous God who must judge sin and the blood of the innocent animal would satisfy God temporarily. The seat became the place of propitiation, the place where God's wrath was appeased. And family, in our narrative, in our story this morning, the ark, the place of atonement, was given over to an enemy. And although it appeared that God was defeated, he was actually the conqueror. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what happens at the cross? Satan, the leaders who opposed Jesus, the crowds who cried out, crucify him. The Roman government who who thought they were in control and did whatever they wanted to and nailed him to a cross. He was done. We got rid of him, that troublemaker. And the rulers thought they had the victory over the Son of God. They were actually planning their own defeat. Jesus delivered, Acts 2, in the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him, Peter said, killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Family, listen. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was handed over to the enemies, but it was through his death 
that he conquered sin, death, the grave, hell, and the powers of this world. The tomb is empty. He is victorious. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over him. Family, upon the throne of grace, the Lord God met sinful man at Calvary. Jesus Christ shed his blood for our sins once and for all, turning the wrath of God and tearing down, uh, turning away the wrath of God and tearing down the wall that separates us. Family, Jesus is the mercy seat. He is our propitiatory sacrifice. The believing sinner is now justified by a gift of his grace, the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. Jesus destroys the barrier of the glory in the presence of God because he is the way through the barrier. He is the Shekinah glory. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate priest. I am, Jesus is saying, the glory you're looking for. I am the fulfillment of your heart. Glory in me, lost in me, love in me. Pursue me, worship me, and I will satisfy you. And family, if you're new here or you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a believer, you haven't bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessed him as Lord and Savior, prophet, priest, and true king, and you rather say, I'll take, I'd rather have uh, my riches, I'd rather have prosperity and power than have Jesus. Listen, you're chasing after things, idols that will never satisfy. And whatever God you bow down to, whatever allegiance you give to these gods, whether it's human reason, whether it is God of pleasure, God of sex, God of fame, they are broken vessels this morning. They are broken vessels. Every single one of them can hold no value. We are all glory starved. Our hearts will never rest until the glory we are seeking for, the very presence of God, comes into our lives through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, his work on the cross is the greatest display of the glory of God on earth. And he is calling needy sinners to come, have their sins forgiven, to love him, to come to him, to treasure him, Jesus, who is the glory of God. Do you know him that way? Do you love him that way? Are you willing to confess your idols? Are you willing to confess your sins? Are you willing to say, I, I've, I've placed family, I've placed kids, I've placed fame, I've placed money, whatever it is, we all have our idols and lay them down and say, I want nothing but Christ and know nothing but him crucified to a relationship with Christ through the word of God. We're gonna sing a song. All I have is Christ. Let's do that. Let's prayerfully sing that song together and give it over to the Lord. Father, as we sing, as we continue to worship in singing and responding, Lord, help us to recognize our idols and to recognize their foolishness and worthlessness and to recognize the true King, the true Lord, the true Savior of incalculable worth, infinite value, who is not against us but for us, clearly shown to us on Calvary in the empty tomb. Help us to worship and respond well, we pray.